0: Welcome to Lincoln Log, where we speak with leading historians and other officials about their stories, research, and wisdom. Expand your knowledge and indulge your curiosity here on Lincoln Log. This podcast is produced by the Abraham Lincoln Association, aiding and promoting Abraham Lincoln's life and legacy. Founded in 1908, the ALA remains the nation's oldest and largest Lincoln organization. Learn more at abrahamlincolnassociation.org. Greetings. I am your host, Joshua Claiborne, and I am pleased to welcome Alan Gelzo to our Lincoln Log podcast. Backed by popular demand, Professor Gelzo becomes our podcast's first repeat guest. His first episode with us was a clear frontrunner for downloads and listens. Professor Gelzo is the senior research scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton University and director of the James Madison Program's Initiative in Politics and Statesmanship. Previously, he served as professor of the Civil War era and director of Civil War era studies at Gettysburg College. Professor Gelzo is one of the world's foremost leaders in American intellectual history, with a particular focus on Civil War era scholarship. He is the author of many books, including Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, The End of Slavery in America, Gettysburg, The Last Invasion, and Reconstruction, A Concise History. These books were a bestseller and earned several prestigious awards. This September in 2021, his latest from Penguin Random House, Robert E. Lee, A Life, will be published, and I expect it to be among the year's most discussed nonfiction books. Professor Agelzo is a frequent contributor to various newspapers and magazines and ranks among my own personal favorite public intellectuals. Alan, thank you for joining us.
1: Joshua, it's uh, an honor to be asked to come back and speak a second time with you. This is, uh, this is tremendous.
0: Right. What the people demand, we give them, I guess, right?
1: <laughs> That's right. Let the people rule. Although there I'm quoting Stephen A. Douglas instead of <laughs> Abraham Lincoln.
0: <laughs> well, uh, certainly looking forward and want to delve into your new uh, Robert E. Lee book. But I want to begin with a uh, real touch real briefly on a really interesting profile of you in the Princeton Alumni Weekly titled The Politics of History, and it examines how someone like you with what you might say an unorthodox ideology in academic standards manages to thrive and engage with how we teach history. Um, How are you able to engage in modern political discussion without um, stepping on what seems to be so many sensitive toes in in academia? Or is that a, a false characterization from an outsider of how academia perceives these things?
1: I think I think questions like that tend to vary from discipline to discipline to discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, historians, by and large, tend to be very self-motivated. They do not tend to work in groups. I mean, we're not talking here as, as some people in the social sciences or the hard sciences, where you have articles that are published in journals, virtually by committees. Mm-hmm. Uh, historians tend to be single operators. We tend to be loners pursuing our own lines of research. Uh, frequently, we have people that we connect with. I mean, this is especially true for, true for me doing work on Abraham Lincoln, uh, because one thing that I uh, discovered very early on in working on Abraham Lincoln was what a wonderful resource other Lincoln scholars were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think I ever had or ever experienced quite the warmth or depth of welcome that I experienced in becoming part of what I like to call the Lincoln fraternity, Mm -hmm. Uh, the the collection of Lincolnites, people who are writing and thinking and publishing about Abraham Lincoln. And that includes people that all of us know that way, Michael Burlingame, Doug Wilson. Mm -hmm. Um, These were people who from the very start just open doors and windows for me. So you know, the environment in which uh, Lincoln people do their work is, is, I think, in a lot of ways, a reflection of the influence of Lincoln's example himself. A great uh, insight. In, in, other, in other places, it's, it's much more diffuse. it's much more disparate, Uh, People can be pursuing a line of research for many, many years and never really connect with or overlap with someone who is doing something similar. So in a lot of respects, one's particular politics, especially for historians, don't always necessarily enter into relationships that way because we're so busy with with individual agendas. Uh, A lot of the times we scarcely uh, notice that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm I, I would, uh, admittedly, be something of a minority among um, many in academia today. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I, 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 I've never gotten into particularly deep quarrels with other individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are probably are some people who uh, I would disagree with in some very profound ways. But I think it's very important that you set aside certain aspects of your, your personal thinking, your personal life, your personal convictions Mm -hmm. uh, from what you're doing as a professional. Mm -hmm. And as a historian, my, my own thinking writing research has taken me in so many different directions. I mean, not only Lincoln, uh, but one of the most recent articles I published in a quarterly uh, was about, (laughs) it was about late 18th, early 19th century Quakerism and Quaker townships in southeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, So I think it's very important that for academics, you understand that your politics or your other aspects of your life, I mean, that's one department, put it over there on the side, do the very best you can from letting that take over Mm -hmm. what you are doing professionally. And uh, that is is what I try to do. I had a mentor in graduate school Mm -hmm. who once made the comment, in the class he was teaching if you can guess what i personally think about this subject i will consider that i have failed and i've tried to use that as a pole star
0: that really Uh, is a good point yeah
1: i i i have tried and i hope i have succeeded in all of my classroom teaching to have given no one any particular clue to say oh well he he must have this set of political convictions, or he must have this set of other kinds of convictions. Um, I try as strenuously as I can uh, to stay away from that kind of thing in my professional life.
0: Let's just delve right into Robert E Lee, which is of course, a controversial figure. Um, why write about Lee? I know he's one of the only figures on the Civil War landscape who seem to be in any way equal to significance. Um, but but how do you, Uh, write about the biography of a man who commits treason?
1: (laughs) Well, that actually is the question that provoked me to write about uh, Robert E. Lee, probably more than any other question. Uh, I first conceived the idea of writing about Lee uh, in 2013, 2014. Uh, Back when when the environment for talking about Robert E. Lee was very, very, very different, um, but why, why Lee? I, I think largely because I really wanted to investigate a different perspective on the Civil War era, for one thing. Uh, I'm, I'm a Yankee from Yankee land. And I grew up uh, with a very different perspective on the Civil War, it was the perspective of a Pennsylvanian. Um, I was raised in large measure by my grandmother. And my grandmother, as a schoolgirl, had been in Philadelphia schools back just after the turn of the 20th century mm-hmm. when the old veterans of the Grand Army of the Republic, the veterans of the Union Army, would come on what they called then Decoration Day to the schools to talk about the real meaning of the Civil War. Of course, what they wanted to make clear was all those neo Confederates down in the South who are uh, flying the flag for the lost cause are wrong will tell you what the war was really about. It was about slavery. It was about saving the Union. Well, this is what she took in as a schoolgirl. And that was what she imparted to me. And that was how I learned about the Civil War uh, as as a small boy. That was my perspective on it. Mm -hmm. So to write about Lee was a way of saying, well, let's pick up the telescope and look at this in a way I've never looked at it before uh, from the other end of the telescope and see what that landscape looks like when you have uh, a different end of the telescope to look through. Right. And then of course, there really is the, the question you mentioned, how do you write the biography of a man who commits treason? Uh, because frankly, I I say in the book, I have said in, in lectures I've given, including <laughs> including one at Washington and Lee University, talk about putting my head into the lion's mouth, um, he, he commits treason. Mm-hmm. There's really no other way you can slice it. You take the constitutional definition of what treason is, and I don't think you can really spin it any other way. Now, there are all kinds of complications which entered into uh, that definition of treason, and a lot of those complications explain why there never was a trial I mean, he was indicted for it, but he was never brought to trial. But nevertheless, when you come right down to it, what you're looking at is someone who raised his hand against the Constitution, against the flag he had taken an oath to serve under. Uh, How do you write a biography of someone who does something like that? Uh, That's a challenge in its own right. It's In some senses, it's very easy to write a, a biography of someone you can easily admire, but when someone has done something like that that threatens the very life of the nation, how do you write a biography of someone like that? That's a challenge. And I have to admit, challenges are like red flags. <laughs> if, you, if you really want to see me get um, enthused and energized, uh, try waving one of those red flags at me. I'll respond to it. Uh-huh. Uh, c- certainly, he's very different from Lincoln. Right. No no question uh, that dealing with Lee is a very different universe from writing about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, for one thing, Lee is born to a, a distinguished family. He's born to the Lees of Virginia. Uh, one of his uh, relatives was R- Richard Henry Lee, who, of course, is famous for actually making the motion for American independence in 1776 in the Continental Congress. Mm-hmm. And his father is Uh, Light Horse Harry Lee, uh, Washington's uh, favorite cavalry commander during the American Revolution. Uh, So he's very different from Lincoln that way. He's different in the fact that he has a college education. Uh, Lincoln, of course, at one point described his education in one word, defective. But Lee has the benefit of a college education. Now, granted, it's West Point, but still he has an education that Lincoln did not get. He's an engineer by training and by, and by disposition, too. Uh, mm-hmm. So that sets him apart in a lot of ways professionally from Lincoln as a lawyer. But, but Joshua, the appearances could be deceiving about, uh, about Robert E. Lee. Um, Lee is often sometimes described as being an aristocrat born of an aristocratic family. No, he really wasn't. A prominent family, yes. Aristocrat, no. Mm. Lighthorse Harry Lee did not have deep financial resources. Uh, He married into Lee family money, Lee cousins, and then into when he married a second time into the Carters, which was big time money in Virginia. But he burned through it all. He was a a walking financial disaster. Nobody trusted him. Uh, financially and in fact he winds up in prison for debt Uh, he takes the wrong side in virginia politics because he's a federalist and ends up being beaten by a mob within an inch of his life Uh, he flees to the west indies and of course abandons his son robert and i think that leaves a a permanent scar on robert e lee Um, above all above all lincoln is very different from from lee because by the 1850s Abraham Lincoln has acquired a remarkably mature and balanced sense of himself. Lincoln was thoughtful. He was inquiring. He read very widely. Lee has no comparable intellectual depth. There's little trace of any reading in his life outside of his professional needs. Lincoln will quote Shakespeare at the drop of a hat there's only one Shakespeare citation I've ever been able to identify in Lee's writings. Uh, and it's from a midsummer night's dream. Uh, they're very, very different that way, uh, in terms of temperament, in terms of background, uh, very, very different kinds of people.
0: Yeah. I have to imagine, uh, the Lee book was also ch- a challenge, to research. Um, unlike the papers and letters of Lincoln, Grant, Davis, uh, there doesn't seem to be any easily available scholarly edition of letters and papers for Lee.
1: Um, oh, no. No. And and that is a major discouragement for people who contemplate uh, any kind of autobiography or any kind of biographical uh, uh, foray uh, into Robert E. Lee. I mean, Lee was a great letter writer. Right. He, At least in terms of volume. Uh, he wrote I would estimate somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 letters in his life, sometimes multiple letters in a single day. Few of them have a lot of substance to them, but he wrote a lot of them. And one of the problems is that the surviving Lee letters are scattered in archive, from archive, to archive, to archive, all across the country. I mean, literally, I have dealt with archives, with Lee materials, uh, all the way from the Pierpont Lib- Morgan Library in New York to the Huntington Library in San Marino, and and almost all points in between. A- and in fact, one of the strangest sources for Lee letters uh, is, is eBay and auction sites, because There are Lee letters, a lot of them, in private hands that frequently bubble up to the surface uh, for auction opportunities. Uh, I'm very grateful for the auction sites that reproduce the Lee letters because then I can get at the text of them. But it it is almost nightmarish trying to track down all the different paths of lee materials because sometimes you'll get a penny packet of lee stuff here and a penny packet in another place um there's no there's no central collection of of lee letters there's some big collections at the library of congress at washington and lee uh university uh but and 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 of the virginia museum of history and culture uh but As soon as you move beyond those, everything becomes very scattered. And there is no no single edition like the grant papers or the collected works of Abraham Lincoln. You've got to go track these things down yourself. And one of the things I had to do at the very beginning of the project was to create what I called a calendar of Lee letters. Uh, That calendar has grown to 104 single-spaced pages, um, single spaced entries describing these letters. That's a lot of letters. And I'm sure it's not anywhere even close to being comprehensive.
0: Well, I think that index of letters for me underscores in my mind, why you're so well respected among many re- historians, that level of research. Um, and kudos to you for doing that work. And especially for somebody, maybe because they are so scattered, that's been daunting for some historians. So very happy you've done that. Um, you touched previously on the difference between Lincoln and uh, Lee's personality. Um, one other, and you know, intellect and our intellectual interests, I should say. And I've always been intrigued that Lee was an engineer and spent most of his life or career, I should say, not life, but career in the um, Army Corps of Engineers. Um, did you have to bone up on engineering to get in Lee's head? Um, if so, how did you do that?
1: Well, I did have to give myself sort of a mini crash course in coastal engineering, because most of Lee's career, uh, right up to the middle of the 1850s, uh, is devoted to engineering, and the projects that he's responsible for for are what we technically would call coastal engineering. Uh, coastal engineering is a very technical subset of civil engineering. Uh, It's very complicated because there are so many variables in dealing with it. But when when I talk about coastal engineering projects, what I'm talking about are things like the construction of third system fortifications in the 1830s and 40s and 50s, which Lee was very involved in. Uh, Lee was involved in the early stages of the construction of Fort Pulaski uh, on Coxsburg Island uh, the Savannah River. Uh, Fort Carroll in Baltimore Harbor, which was actually never finished. He also spent several years as a project manager restoring uh, the the wharfage uh, for St. Louis. Uh, St. Louis, at one point, because of the vagaries of the Mississippi River, was in some danger of becoming an inland city in Missouri. And he spends four years Uh, at work on a project that restored the course of the Mississippi so that St. Louis didn't wind up being, so to speak, in exile. Uh, To to understand all the variable factors that go into the making of a good coastal engineer, uh, the constant uh, dealing with water sources, the movement of water, the movement of weather, Uh, you can have problems in particular sites that you're working at that are really caused uh, by dozens, maybe hundreds of miles away. At St. Louis, for instance, one of the principal problems Lee had to work with was the Des Moines Rapids, which was substantially far upstream from St. Louis. And yet the Des Moines Rapids were one of the chief problems causing the silting up of the St. Louis Harbor. So all of this, I had to borrow some books on coastal engineering and not being an engineering person or not being a math person. It was a little rough going, but I, I, it was important for trying to understand uh, Lee professionally, Lee as a person. Uh, that, that was a story in its own right. I hope I haven't made too much of a botch of it, and if I get nasty letters from civil engineers that I didn't get this right or didn't understand that properly, I will just have to submit patiently.
0: (laughs) Well, Lee served in the Mexican War as a staff officer, but he commanded troops in action for the first time, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when he was given charge of the company of Marines uh, that put down John Brown's raid at Harpers Ferry in 1859. How did he garner such military success with what seems to to my mind anyway to be relatively meager experience?
1: In some respects, uh, there's no better word to use about Robert E. Lee's military career than to use surprising, Mm -hmm. because from the time he graduated from West Point in 1829 up until the Mexican War, uh, he was entirely involved with engineering projects of various sorts. Uh, he's either on site with these engineering projects or he is doing office time with the chief engineer's office in Washington, D.C. Uh, he had very close relationships with the two major chief engineers <laughs> of the pre-Civil War decades, Charles Grayshot and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, chief engineer Totten. And both of them were sort of father figures for Lee. Uh, They were sponsors for Lee. They protected Lee. They kept Lee out of some real potentially embarrassing military hotspots. Uh, For instance, his assignments as an engineer meant that he was not, in fact, sent to Florida for the Seminole Wars. The Seminole Wars were the abyss of a number of military careers. He also was not given the unpalatable task that was handed to Winfield Scott, uh, to supervise the Trail of Tears, uh, the expulsion of the so-called five civilized tribes uh, to what became known as Indian Territory. He spared, Leah spared a lot of that. So on the one hand, he he avoids the kind of uh, quicksand professionally that is posed by some of these military challenges. The downside of that is that he really never commands troops under fire. Uh, He never really has any kind of battlefield experience. When the Mexican War breaks out, he is assigned as an engineer to the staff of General John Wool in Texas and northern Mexico, but it's engineering jobs. Uh, It's laying out roads. Uh, It's supervising uh, the movement of troops and material. It is not until he's transferred to the staff of Winfield Scott for Winfield Scott's climactic invasion of Mexico, the landing at Veracruz, the march inland, the capture of uh, Mexico City. It's not until he's assigned to Scott's staff that Scott, who is really one of the greatest, if not the greatest uh, general in, uh, in United States military history in the 19th century, Scott had a very keen idea uh, eye for military talent and he sees at once that lee is a remarkable figure and he begins to employ lee not just as an engineer he really makes lee a principal staff aide and he assigns to lee over and over again extremely important reconnaissance missions Uh, he seeks lee's opinion about the sighting of artillery Uh, The most famous moment, of course, uh, occurs when Lee crosses and recrosses the Pedregal, uh, just south of Mexico City, this lava field uh, that was, it was a barren, harsh landscape, and Lee must move back and forth on that, trying to maneuver troops into position for the attack that Scott is arranging. And yet, even with all that, Lee never actually takes command of troops under fire. He is acting as a staff officer. He never actually commands troops under fire until October of 1859. I mean, he was from 1855 until 1860, the Lieutenant Colonel of the 2nd Cavalry in Texas. But even then, really, His service amounted to chasing bands of Comanche and of uh, Mexican irregulars around the countryside. He never actually pulls a trigger in in anger. Uh, It is not until John Brown's raid that he's given command of a company of Marines and sent off to suppress uh, Brown's insurrection at Harpers Ferry, which he does very well. But that's when Robert E. Lee's military career at least as a combat officer, really begins.
0: Right. Well, I'm also intrigued that Lee said one of the, and I guess tying into this, that one of the worst mistakes of his life had been to take a military education. And after the war, he seems to really relish his role as president of Washington College um, and seemed to be uh, quite successful there as a fundraiser and a teacher or at least curriculum innovator. Do you think he might have been happier in academia instead of the battlefield if he could live his life over again? Or is that just sort of his happy retirement? Game?
1: Oh, sometimes it's hard to know what would have made Robert E. Lee happy. Um, <laughs> Lee is not a cheerful person by temperament to deal with. Uh, when you, and you see this very early on in his life. There are three major aspects of Lee's personality that govern him all all really all the way through to his death in 1870 one is a pursuit of perfection he is a perfectionist and in large measure I tend to see that as a way that Lee had of trying to compensate for the follies committed by his father by Light Horse Harry Lee. In fact, not only by Light Horse Harry, there were so many of the Lees of Light Horse Harry's generation who just seemed to make one botch after another of things uh, to the point where the name Lee would make a, a number of people's eyes roll. Uh, Robert, Robert Lee is dedicated to perfectionism. He is going to compensate for the follies that have become attached to the Lee name. And that drives him. It drives him all through the Civil War, and it drives him as president of Washington College. The other, th- the other two things, he has a real desire for independence. Mm-hmm. He wants to be on his own. He wants to call his own shots. He doesn't want to be dictated to or entangled with uh, the authority of other people which is a very strange position to be in when you're part of the military. Right, right. But that is what draws me to the third part of it. And that is his passion for security. He wanted security. Uh, even though he actually inherits a fairly tidy sum uh, after the death of his mother, uh, Anne Carter Lee, uh, he always, for all of his life, does nothing but cry a poor mouth. I mean, he marries Mary Custis, and thus marries into one of the most prominent families in the District of Columbia. Uh, the Custises own the greatest estate known as Arlington. Of course, now today that's Arlington National Cemetery. Mm-hmm. And you would have thought that Lee, in that case, um, had had done extremely well. You would never know it from reading Lee's letters. He is constantly. Worrying about money, constantly convinced that he's uh, headed for nothing except the poorhouse, uh-huh. and uh, he is obsessed with trying to find something that is secure, which means he won't take chances. Uh-huh. That passion for security is always at war with the passion for independence. Uh-huh. So he'll stay in the army. Why? Because the army is secure employment. It's the one kind of employment in the pre-civil War decades in American life that really is not uh, at at the mercy of economic bumps up and down right. I mean many of many of Lees contemporaries many of those who, who went to West Point and graduated with what amounted to uh, engineering degrees uh, they would serve in the army for as, as little a a smaller period of time as they possibly could and then resign and go into civil engineering and make lots of money the problem was that you would make lots of money and then you'd hit a bad patch in the economy and then it wouldn't be nearly so pleasant lee dreaded that so lee stayed in the army not because he loved the army that in fact is what goes back to the comment you were uh, quoting there uh, he makes towards the end of his life when he says the big mistake of his life was taking a military education. It wasn't that he loved the army, it's that the army provided secure and stable employment. Right. You could Once you were commissioned, you would stay in the army no matter what. You would stay, there was no retirement program. You would stay on and even if you were halfway gone into senility (laughs) there was no way they could get rid of you they couldn't make you resign and even if you did resign there would still be perquisites that uh, that would go with that so he wants security and the army offers him security and he stays in for that
0: well although some of the furor over confederate monuments has subsided a bit at least uh, currently it still remains a popular topic of conversation and Robert E. Lee is often at the center of those. We've got competing protests in Charlottesville over an equestrian statue of Lee um, that I think has been there since the 1920s. There's a statue of Lee Circle, uh, what I think it was removed from Lee Circle in New Orleans, and there's dozens of other schools and symbols throughout uh, the country of Lee. Um, there's an army installation at Petersburg that bears his name. We've got Fort Hamilton in New York City. Um, I guess a couple of questions uh, stem from that. Why are there statues of Robert E. Lee in the first place? After all, he helped lose the Civil War for the South, and we don't typically recognize losers. But then, um, um, how do we? Uh, what's what's the best framework to assess whether to keep these uh, monuments and statues at all?
1: Well, I have I have the same question in my mind. <laughs> Although, again, bear in mind, I'm a Yankee from the Yankee land. I look at Lee's statues and I'm thinking, why is that there? Why is there a statue to Robert E. Lee, of all people? Uh, There's no statue to, dare I say it, Benedict Arnold. There is sort of one on the Saratoga battlefield where Arnold, this was before Arnold had, in fact, committed his treason and and distinguished himself at the Battle of Saratoga. What there is on the Saratoga battlefield is a monument with a boot, because Arnold was wounded in the leg there at Saratoga. But that's as much as Benedict Arnold gets. So there's no other statues of Benedict Arnold. So I look at statues of Robert E. Lee, and I look at them and say, why is there a statue of Robert E. Lee there? Well, there are are some complicating factors here. One is that Lee, although, yes, he commits treason. And that raises the question, why should there be a statue to someone who commits treason? Uh, He did at least contribute in an important way to damping down bad feeling at the end of the Civil War and promoting reconciliation. I don't know that that's enough to warrant putting up a statue to someone, but for many Southerners, it was. And especially as the veterans of the Confederate armies aged into the 20th century, uh, they tended to put this gauzy uh, lost cause mythology in place that glorified Robert E. Lee. And so statues of Lee went up. So I, I have to say that I, I, I would not raise a finger to put up a new statue to Robert E. Lee. But I have a certain instinctive reluctance about tearing statues down, if only because there's a certain reluctance on my part to give the imprimatur to, in, to, to a kind of iconoclasm. I mean, iconoclasm feels great at the moment. It feels like you're, you're taking a kind of revenge. You're evening up the right. scores. Right. Now, let's tear down this statue because uh, this was a terrible person and that's going to make us all feel better. Yeah, it does. But Generations later, people look back and say, what, what were you thinking? Right. Uh, the, um, to give you an example, at the time of the English Reformation, it's been estimated by the people of the Tate Gallery that up to 70% of England's religious art was destroyed by zealous Protestants who believed that these images were all the uh, markers of uh, the, the papal antichrist and therefore had to be destroyed because they were evil. Uh, People then felt that that was an entirely just and reasonable thing to do. And so they destroyed them. 400 years later, we look back and say, Oh my goodness, what were they thinking? Right. This is, this is just wanton destruction. Right. And, and I have this, this sense that, that, That may be what we look upon uh, statue destruction today as being like when we move uh, some decades or a hundred years into the future and people will say, what what do they actually think they were accomplishing by this? After all, statues of Robert E. Lee, Robert E. Lee does not get down off his horse and in the middle of the night, go do unpleasant things to people. It is, in some ways, it's a statue. And there are other statues that are actually... They, that actually marks stranger things you know there's a statue to the whiskey rebels in western pennsylvania in washington county well you know they committed treason <laughs> right. but why is there a statue to the whiskey rebels or at least why is no one talking about tearing them down there's even believe it or not uh, joshua there's even a monument to the donner party in in california Uh, The Donner Party, of course, were the people who resorted to cannibalism. Right. And believe it or not, there is actually a picnic grounds named for the Donner Party. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, who dreamt that one up? I mean, that's like saying, you know, let's have let's have a Donner barbecue (laughs) just saying it makes you want to laugh but also makes you want to shrink a little bit right so we have all kinds of peculiar monuments to things i mean lee in that respect is is simply one prominent example of peculiar monuments do we tear them all down do we go after everything the the instinct that i have is unless you're looking at a monument to someone who actually committed literal harms to people living today, then there's really very little purpose served by by monument destruction. Now, back in 1956, there are these famous images from from the Hungarian uprising in 1956 of Hungarian rebels tearing down the statue of Joseph Stalin. All right, that I can understand. They were living people there in Hungary in 1956, who so had suffered because of Stalin. right? And we, in 1776, after our Declaration of Independence, we tore down a statue of King George III in uh, in Manhattan. Uh, there were people who were living then who had suffered harms from the people memorialized on those statues. Right. That I can understand. But when we're talking 150 years later, then we're really not so much talking about a memorial or a a monument, we're really talking about something that's hardly much more than a marker. And I really have to question what we're accomplishing by that.
0: Um, We could transition a little bit, I guess, to your career. Um, So much of your writing concerns American ideas, particularly early American thought through 1865. You've offered intellectual biographies of Lincoln, a dissertation on Jonathan Edwards and the problem of free will and determination, etc., real quick, I want to give a plug to one. I mean, we always talk about your big books that make us flash and um, get all the awards, but you did a very short introduction to Lincoln for Oxford, and I'm holding it right here. It is very tiny, uh, but it is accessible, and it's really about Lincoln's ideas. And so I think for anybody that really wants a nice introduction to that or a a breezy uh, overview of it, you did an excellent job of that and uh, really commend you for that. But Well, thank you why is it uh the American idea seems like an obvious area of pursuit but in my mind you seem to be um one of the few who pursue it doggedly why 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 is it such a rare focus among academia?
1: I think it's rare for uh for two reasons one is that there is a prevailing sense that Americans have of themselves that we are a nation of doers rather than thinkers uh we are people who have left the past behind we are pressing forward into the future we don't need to think about past structures of ideas and their influence we're we're going to make our future for ourselves and it's a very whitman-esque emersonian way of saying that well americans are launching out on new paths And we don't want to see ourselves uh, bridled and trammeled by the ideas of the past. And that is a misperception of, first of all, American history itself. But I think it's also a misperception of the American character. Uh, One of the curious things we have to reflect upon in American life is the fact that we are a nation founded on ideas. I mean, this is what Lincoln says in the Gettysburg Address. Right. You know, four score and seven years ago, brought forth a nation dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. We are a remarkable nation in that respect, in that we are dedicated to an idea. The other thing that I think tends to steer people away is the fact that in the wake of the American Civil War, we experienced a great disenchantment. Uh, the, the American Civil War was very much a war waged about those ideas Lincoln talked about at Gettysburg, and we paid a ferocious cost for our loyalty to those ideas. Ferocious, and for many people, it almost struck them as being too much because the actual results of the Civil War sometimes seemed to be so meager. We come to 1865, and what do we embark upon? Reconstruction. Reconstruction is the dark abyss of of American history. Uh, It's it's a way in which we took all the sacrifices of the Civil War and almost negated them and ended up on the other side in 1877 uh, with something far, far less enchanting than we thought we were going to get when the war ended in 1865. And many American thinkers in those post-Civil War decades took exactly that attitude. And what emerges as a dominant way of thinking in American ideas at that point is uh, the school of thought known as pragmatism. Uh, Pragmatism, which we often associate with William James, with Charles Sanders Peirce, with John Dewey. And pragmatism took as its basic theme that ideas are merely instruments. They don't really have any kind of power or validity in and of themselves. Uh, They are instruments uh, by which we cope with various pressures. So pragmatism became a predominant way of American thinking. And because pragmatism discounted the importance of the substance of ideas as opposed to their function, uh, we lost a sense of the importance of ideas and of an American intellect. We tended to think of ourselves as a pragmatic nation. So when you combine that Whitman-esque optimism with the spirit of pragmatism, you develop, you cultivate a real indifference to the role of ideas in American history. And I think we've shortchanged ourselves that way, and it's reflected in a lot of American historiography.
0: That's excellent uh, insight. You know, you talked about how... Um... Historiography has changed because of that. How has, um, I guess, in more recent times, how has writing about Lincoln and the Civil War changed since you published uh, your one of your first books, hey, Abraham Lincoln: Redeemer President?
1: Well, I think both writing on the Civil War and on Lincoln have have changed in some some interesting ways, and and not in some other ways. Uh, the Civil War, probably taken as the history of an era, has probably undergone more change than. Than studies of Lincoln have. Uh, back in 1990, uh, Maris Vinovskis published a collection of essays lamenting why social historians had taken so little interest in the Civil War. Well, that was 1990. Uh, 31 years on, now almost everybody who is writing about the Civil War, in especially in academic circles is writing about social history uh, and the social history of the Civil War. Uh Uh, It used to be when you would leaf through quarterlies like Civil War history, you would read articles about battles, about soldiers, about generals. Uh, Now you can hardly find that at all. Uh, There's still a good deal of interest in the war itself as the war, but not among academics. Yeah,
0: there seems to be a disconnect between the popular demand and the academic yeah,
1: there's a, there's a great divide that way. There's still a lot of interest in the war as war, uh, in popular magazines, but among academics, it's it's a very different story, yeah. and it's become actually much more rare to find academic historians writing about uh, battles, campaigns, generals, and so on and so forth like that. Uh, I, th- I there there are moments when you can almost read a lot of academic history of the Civil War era and only be dimly aware that there was a war on. And yet there, there we have uh, a lot of the writing these days. Right.
0: Very interesting.
1: Now now for Lincoln, um, what, it, what strikes me is how much of writing about Abraham Lincoln today still plows a lot of the same furrows as it has for, for a very long time. The biggest change in my experience in Lincoln Studies was introduced by the Lincoln Legal Papers Project. That was a tremendous revolution in Lincoln Studies because it opened up to us what we had never really had before. And that was uh, Lincoln the Trial Lawyer. Wow. Um, the collected works of Lincoln, the Basler edition of the collected works of Lincoln, only included fragments of. Of Lincoln's legal work. And in fact, in the introduction to the Basler Collected Works, um, the editors were very frank in saying, we're we're just simply not going to include a lot of the legal papers. I mean, for one thing, that would have swollen the task of the Collected Works Project enormously in the 1950s. And also because a lot of the papers that are connected to Lincoln's legal practice. Well, they're not necessarily Lincoln. I mean, they're a part of the practice. They're depositions, they're statements, they're judgments of various sorts. Are they really Lincoln papers? There's a certain question that way. So that doesn't get into the the complete works of Lincoln. Also, I have to add, too, it was difficult enough for uh, Roy P. Basler and his team to assemble the documents they did assemble. If you read the footnotes along the volumes of the collected Lincoln, you can see how much extraordinary energy had to be devoted to discovering Lincoln documents. To have added on top of that, ransacking all these county courthouses across Illinois uh, for back files of cases that Lincoln was involved in, that was just a bridge too far. It was not until the Lincoln legal papers began its work uh, really, and, and pursuing those documents in those those little county courthouse archives uh, that we had a view of Lincoln as a lawyer. But beyond that, it's it's baffling how we still ring the changes on a lot of the same topics. In, in fact, what, what's odd is that a lot of those topics um, are the same things that James Garfield Randall complained about in the 1930s when he gave his famous address, has the Lincoln theme been exhausted? Right. Randall laid out research agendas in that lecture, which became an art, published article. Uh, he laid out a different set of research agendas back in the 1930s, which, maddeningly enough, many of them to this day lay untouched. Uh, if, if I had to sketch out where I would like to see Lincoln research going, there are a number of topics I'd really like to see energetic students undertake, either as PhD dissertations or or what have you. One is Lincoln and Congress. Wow. Now, recently, Fergus Bordwich wrote a, a really fine book about Lincoln and his relations with Congress. And yet my, my critique of Fergus's book that way which I like in a lot of ways, and Fergus is a very good friend. It just didn't go far enough. Uh-huh. Uh, Benjamin Wade, you know, Bluff Ben Wade, made this complaint about Lincoln, that Lincoln had what he called this back-kitchen way of dealing with Congress. And I'd really love to see the interstices of Lincoln's interactions with Congress taken much more seriously, taken to much greater degrees of depth, go into the newspapers, go into the archives, look into the diaries and the letters of members of Congress for how Lincoln has this way of exerting pressure in a very indirect, a very discreet, almost invisible fashion, but still pressure that gets him the results that he wants. Another topic I'd love to see explored in greater depth, Lincoln and Illinois Whigs. Uh-huh. We, we, we took a big step um, uh, t- uh, toward this um, in, in books that have been written about uh, Lincoln's early life in Illinois, but Lincoln as an Illinois Whig, the political shape of what it meant to be a Whig in Illinois in the 1840s and the 1850s, that, that still remains to be explored okay. in much greater depth. I'd also like to see someone write about Lincoln and the Declaration of Independence. I mean, we think we know what Lincoln had to say about the Declaration of Independence because he stood right outside Independence Hall right. and said in, in, on February 22nd, 1861, I've never had a thought that did not originate from the Declaration of Independence. And we think that, all right, well, that says it all. No, actually it doesn't. Lincoln was talking about the Declaration of Independence way back into the 1850s and the 1840s, and it really is a touchstone for him, and I'd like to see someone really open that up. I'd also like to see someone open up the comment that he made. This this was very early on in January of 1841 in a letter to Joshua Speed. Lincoln said, I am always superstitious. I'd love to see someone open up what Lincoln meant by superstitious because you get occasionally these odd moments when Lincoln will this, he has a very rational enlightenment oriented thinker suddenly display this streak of the superstitious. Uh, When, when Robert is, uh, is bitten by a dog, Lincoln wants to go and get a mad stone to see if he can be, Uh, healed from this so they they, they can keep off rabies as a possibility. You're thinking, a mad stone? Abraham Lincoln? The the superstition was there. He he writes to his wife at one point. This is during the war when Mary has has taken uh, Tad with her on vacation up to Vermont. He writes to Mary and he says, I think you better take away that toy gun of Tad's. I had a very bad dream about him. What? So what is this streak of the superstitious in Lincoln? I'd really love to see somebody explore that.
0: Yeah, no, that's great insight. And good. Prompt. So, well, the yeah, there's
1: a sure. number of agendas this way. I'd really that's love right. to direct people to, and there's so much that we can open up about Abraham Lincoln. By no means has the Lincoln theme been exhausted.
0: Yeah, on the superstition front, I'm working uh, on uh, really a more comprehensive history of Lincoln's youth prior to Illinois. And it's it's very clear how much, the superstition of the frontier influenced him. And I think a lot of it originates from that, that period. Oh,
1: I think, it, I think that's very true. Very true. It also underscores the complexity of the man. Because right. here is a man who, yes, on the one hand, is superstitious and even admits it. But he's also someone who is reading Tom Paine and who thinks of himself as a very rational person and who will hail the triumph of reason, cold calculating reason, he says, must be our guide. This is what he says, says in, the, uh, in the Lyceum Address. Uh, cold calculating reason must be our guide for the future. So there's, there's a complexity in Lincoln that these different strains intersect in the same person. And on top of it all, here's a very thoughtful person And yet he is definitely a politician from the start. Uh, We have not had good accounts of Lincoln's thinking and Lincoln's reading. Uh, Robert Bray wrote a wonderful book on Lincoln's reading. Apart from that, I I would just love to see uh, Lincoln's reading, Lincoln's sources, uh, the kinds of intellectual milieu that Lincoln involved himself in. I would like to see that taken more seriously. I mean, Lincoln is not what we would today call an intellectual. I'm not going to try to pass him off that way. But he was a person who took ideas seriously and who looked for answers in books. Uh-huh. And that, that that makes for a most unusual kind of politician, not only then, but even today.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, um, I appreciate the time. I do have one um, other question before we uh, wrap up today. you won the coveted of the Lincoln Prize three times, and I have every expectation that your Lee biography will garner all sorts of awards, and we can always expect your work to turn heads, so I'm eager to know what's next after Lee.
1: What's next after Lee? Well, there are a couple of projects uh, that I have in view. One one curiously enough is an anniversary edition of Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President. Hmm. Uh, the publisher, William Erdman's, is going to be bringing out an, an anniversary edition with uh, a new introduction. Also, will give me an opportunity to correct a few. Yeah, I have to admit <laughs> mistakes. Yeah, I made. There were some. There were some mistakes. All right, <laughs> I will try to correct them as quietly as I can without <laughs> drawing undue attention to the to those. Um, I would, I'm going to return to the theme of Lincoln and Lincoln and the American experiment. So I have, uh, some ideas at work that way. And beyond that, uh, I am looking at doing another civil war related book this time, uh, concerning the battle of Antietam, Ah. you know, I've written about Gettysburg. Well, Antietam, Antietam has many mysteries, uh, attached to it. Um, not the least of which is the connection that it has to the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. So these are some avenues that I'm I'm looking forward to investigating, and uh, I will be continuing to quarry away at these. So don't be surprised to find me or bump into me in an archive somewhere, buried <laughs> deep, buried deep in 19th century paper.
0: Right, or any one of the many Lincoln fraternity events, I'm sure. we
1: Or can. those as well, yes. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you again for your time. You're always popular, you're always interesting, and you're always turning heads. So we can, I'm sure, expect that to continue.
1: Well, very good. Thank you for the opportunity and wonderful to talk today, Joshua. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Lincoln Log. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show.